Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Okay, let's do this. Yes, I'm stuffing most of World War II into a single episode. It's going to be a lot, but if I were to focus on every battle, every troop movement, every bombardment in detail, we'd be here for a very long time. And this series has already gone on much, much longer than I thought it would. Uh, when I first planned this series, I naively thought that it would be maybe four episodes long. Then I thought, maybe six episodes. Then maybe seven or eight. Now here we are at over a dozen episodes about fascist Italy. We have this episode and one more after it. And when this series is over, I will still not be done with fascist Italy because I will also have some supplementary material that I wasn't able to fit into the main storyline. So if you can't get enough of Joe Streckert talking about tyranny and Mussolini and all that, you will have an option to hear even more of it. Uh, that won't be in the main feed, though. That will be somewhere else. More on that later. Uh, in today's episode, I want to posit to you that World War II was a testing ground for Italian fascism. And during that test, Mussolini's ideology failed on its own terms. Not just failed on somebody else's terms. It didn't just fail if you're a liberal or socialist person and you are looking at fascism and you think it's a bad form of government. No, World War II was an arena where somebody with the same outlook and values and goals as somebody like Mussolini or other fascists would look at the regime and they would have to conclude that it just didn't work. It was a militaristic ideology but on the battlefield, fascism lost. It was an ideology that espoused progress and economic unity, but it could not produce the type of economy necessary to win the war. It was an ideology that emphasized national unity and national autonomy, but Italy more and more found itself subservient to its ally, Nazi Germany. It was an ideology that promised and pursued glory for its own sake, but couldn't deliver. Instead, it brought embarrassing failure. World War II showed us, and later on you'll see, showed Italian fascists themselves, that, again, not only is fascism morally bankrupt, but it's also ineffective. Like I said at the end of the last show, Italy was not really prepared for prime time, and that's ultimately what doomed them. When you're talking about Italy in World War II, it's kind of hard to make a single narrative. There are a lot of different parts to this story that we'll be getting to happening at the same time. But if one were a novelist or a screenwriter who wanted a big battle scene where fascist forces were finally, finally defeated, you really wouldn't be able to find one. Yes, there were important battles and there were exciting battles, but there was no one big shit hitting the fan moment like Hastings or Agincourt or Waterloo here. The Italian armed forces just kind of generally folded and fizzled all over the map during the early part of World War II. And this wasn't really because the soldiers themselves lacked resolve or warrior spirit or whatever. It's because Italy didn't have an industrial war machine capable of standing up to other industrial war machines. 
Uh, for instance, one of the elements of Italian involvement in World War II was a failed invasion of Egypt, then controlled by the British Empire. And during that engagement, the Italians were using tanks that could have been cutting edge during World War I. And those Italian tanks were armed with machine guns. Those machine guns during World War I would have ruled the battlefield. They would have been able to cut down other vehicles and infantry with ease. However, up against the more current modern British tanks, they just weren't able to perform. They couldn't penetrate that armor. So they didn't have the right technological advantage, and they lost. And that's pretty representative of what happened to Italy again and again and again. Their guns, their armor, their airplanes, it just plain wasn't good enough. And this was in spite of pretensions to economic glory and to empire. During all of this, Italy still has Ethiopia. It has a few other African colonies. It also has Albania. It took Albania in 1939, overthrowing the amazingly named Albanian monarch King Zog, which sounds like he should be from Middle Earth or Warhammer or something, and formed a customs and trade union with that country. But Albania and Ethiopia and other African colonies, they weren't able to actually do anything with them. They did not turn those colonies into markets that could power their industrial economy. They couldn't roll enough tanks over enough territory. So Italy entered World War II on June 10th, 1940, which was a little bit late. And the impression I've gotten of fascist Italy is that Mussolini knew it. He knew that his country was not on par with the other powers in Europe, and he hoped that it would be a short war, that Germany would do a lot of the heavy lifting, that France and Britain would fold, that America would never get involved at all. Perhaps he was also hoping that Hitler would not invade Russia. And after that was all over, Mussolini would be able to have a seat at a conference following the war, demanding concessions from the vanquished French and British. And he would be able to claim certain parts of the Mediterranean. It was, after all, a Mediterranean empire, a new Roman empire that he was after. Supposedly, Mussolini remarked, I only need a few thousand dead so I can sit at the peace conference as a man who has fought. So he kind of is like somebody at work or at school who wants to contribute as little as possible to a group project and then claim equal credit after it's all over. It's like that, except with millions of dead people. One of Italy's more dramatic defeats in the war occurred early on in October of 1940. They had a failed invasion of Greece. And it's a big failure for a number of reasons. For one, Italy had not consulted with its ally, Nazi Germany, at all about this invasion. So when Hitler found that Mussolini was invading Greece, he was a little bit surprised. He thought that he might have been consulted about the movements of armies and forces and invasions and all that. And I'd like to believe when I've been reading about this, that this was payback on Mussolini's part for when Hitler took to Sudetenland without consulting him. I will totally admit that's conjecture, but it's narratively satisfying conjecture. What's important here is that the fascist dictators at this point were not communicating with one another. Any notions you have about fascist or authoritarian regimes being well-oiled machines, being efficient and ruthless, throw them out. Early on in the war, the Italians and the Germans were not coordinating well with each other. One hand 
did not know what the other was doing. In October of 1940, Mussolini demanded that Greece submit to Italian occupation or face annihilation. Greece thought about this offer for a moment and, on October 28th, said, No. No, we are not going to do that. In the ensuing conflict, Greece faced anything but the promised annihilation. Instead, they won. They beat the Italian troops. They beat the invaders. They drove them back to Albania. And what was supposed to be one of the first steps toward Italy expanding into a Mediterranean empire was instead a humiliating defeat. Not just that, but it was also really inconvenient for Germany. Throughout much of the rest of Italy's involvement in World War II, Italy is going to be bogged down in Eastern Europe and in the Balkans. For Germany, Italy's adventures in and around that area were an annoying distraction. German troops were diverted to the Balkans to keep bailing Italy out, much to the chagrin of Nazi leaders. This was all a great victory for the Greeks, though, and to this day, October 28th is celebrated as no day, a holiday when they told a fascist dictator, no, they would not just fold under the threat of conquest. So congratulations, Mussolini. You inspired a holiday by being stood up to and by being beaten. Uh, it wasn't all just defeat and desolation, though. Italy did take a small part of southern France in 1940, an area that was perceived to be historically Italian. And that is the one small bit of maybe Mediterranean empire that did happen, along with Albania. But it falls far, far short of Mussolini's new Roman Empire ambitions. Uh, meanwhile, though, Italy's actual empire, down in Africa, was under attack. British imperial forces and Ethiopian resistance fighters chipped away at Italian forces in Ethiopia throughout 1940. And they did so successfully. On May 5th, 1941, Haile Selassie returned to Addis Ababa five years after the beginning of the Italian occupation. Less than a decade ago, cheering crowds in Rome had greeted the beginnings of a new Roman Empire. Now, five years later, it was all falling apart. The man who had denounced Italy in front of the League of Nations was back in his capital and a reigning emperor once again. And also, meanwhile, there's that failed invasion of Egypt that I mentioned earlier, and there's North Africa. In Northern Africa, Italian forces under the command of General Erwin Rommel felt the push of the Allied war machine. And this is probably the one place where Italian forces performed pretty well, that and in southern France. Under Rommel, the Africa Corps held out for a fairly long time. Taking Northern Africa was by no means a cakewalk for the Allies, but... It was still a victory for them. By May of 1943, the combined British, American, and French forces pushed the Axis back through Tunisia and to areas east, and that territory was very, very crucial. The Allied forces were suddenly on what Winston Churchill had termed the soft underbelly of the Axis powers. In June of 1943, Allied troops invaded Sicily. They had a clear path northward up the Italian boot, and eventually to Rome itself. An invasion of the Italian mainland was imminent. On Saturday, July 24th, 1943, the ruling council of fascist Italy met for its final meeting. The ruling council did not meet especially often. For the most part, Italy was ruled by Mussolini himself. 
He was not merely a figurehead. Mussolini was not content to just give speeches and walk away. He actually did spend a fair amount of his time administrating the various governmental departments he made himself the head of. He spent, weirdly, a lot of time doing paperwork. He hated it. But he didn't just wave his arms and yell. He actually did try to govern, though he was not great at it. And throughout his reign, the ruling council, which ostensibly governed with him, had met less and less. But now, with enemies on Italy's doorstep, they convened for the first time in a long time. As usual, they met in an opulent room called the Hall of the Map of the World. Go on Google, look at this thing, do an image search for it. Take a look at the Sala de Mapamundo, and you could totally understand why a dictator could walk in there and dream of conquest. Mussolini took his usual place at a table, where he'd sat the last couple of times that the ruling council of fascist Italy had met. He was surrounded by people that were, ostensibly, his subordinates. This meeting, though, would prove to be the last meeting of the council, and Mussolini, he would walk in as a dictator, and he would walk out as a prisoner. As the meeting began, Mussolini failed to take responsibility for Italy's losses. Even though he had made himself the head of numerous governmental departments, including of Italy's Air Force, he blamed generals, he blamed field commanders, he blamed essentially everybody except him. If only his brilliance and his vision had been implemented correctly, Italy would not be dealing with the loss of his empire and imminent invasion. After some hubbub and some debate, one of the other council members, a man named Dino Grandi, stood up and he told Il Duce that he was wrong. It was not the generals, it was not the field commanders who were dooming Italy, who had brought Italy to ruin. It was the dictator himself. Grandi said, The Italian people were betrayed by Mussolini the day Italy began to be Germanized. He went on and said that Mussolini had engulfed us in a war that is against the honor, against the interest, against the sentiments of the Italian people. Mussolini tried to shout down his underling, but Grandi continued speaking. He continued shouting at a man who'd constructed a cult of personality, who'd fashioned himself as a modern Caesar, who'd put his face and his name on the side of buildings, and had his political opponents killed and imprisoned. Grandi looked at a man who did all that and continued. He said, You believe you still have the devotion of the Italian people? You lost it today you consigned Italy to Germany. You think you are a soldier. Italy was ruined the day you put on your commander's stripes. There are thousands of mothers who cry out, Mussolini killed my son. A shouting match broke out. Decorum broke down. The High Council of Fascism was suddenly screaming at itself from across the table, in the Hall of the Map of the World. Other members of the Council threatened Grandi with death. Other took his side. The arguments continued into the night. Mussolini was uncharacteristically quiet. Eventually there was a motion. Eventually there was a vote. Nineteen of the twenty-seven members of the Council voted that command of the military would be returned to King Victor Emmanuel. Mussolini was stripped of his power. They did this. They spoke and they voted, despite the very real possibility that Mussolini could have ordered to have them all killed. But instead, the dictator who had been beaten in the field sat there, his head in his hands, and allowed himself to be beaten 
in the halls of government as well. After over 20 years, his regime was over. On September 8th of 1943, the Italian crown signed an armistice with the Allies, the Allied forces coming up through Sicily and southern Italy. They were suddenly no longer an invading army. Suddenly, they were Italy's new friends, their new partners in the Second World War. But this armistice also meant immediately declaring war on Italy's former ally, Nazi Germany. King Victor Emmanuel, not wanting to be in the face of the Nazi war machine, fled south with his court. He wanted nothing to do with the Germans, their tanks, their ruthlessness, or really anything about World War II. Fascist Italy, which had named itself after the fascists, a symbol of unbreakable unity, was suddenly broken. The Allies were in the south. The Germans were coming from the north. The boot was cut in two. Next week, Mussolini will head a short-lived German puppet state in northern Italy. It will be the last thing that he ever does before he finally, finally dies. Earlier in the show, I mentioned that there's going to be supplementary material for this series. There is going to be supplementary material for this series and for other episodes as well. Later on in May, I'm going to be changing the support structure of the Weird History Podcast. Uh, people who donate a certain amount every month will get access to exclusive content which will entail lots of things related to this series and other previous episodes that we've done and will do. More news about that in a couple of weeks. Uh, but if you want to support the show, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Be sure to review us and star us on iTunes, uh, because those reviews and stars are very valuable. They help other people find the show. I'm on social media, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast, and on Twitter, at Joe Streckert. Thank you very much for listening. Talk to you next week. Bye.